Hey there, welcome back to the Path Design Podcast, where we are rediscovering the ancient way. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Again, we are in part two of the ongoing series, Fashioning Idols Out of Covenantal Earrings. What in the world are we talking about? Well, we're about to get there in this part. A tiny bit of review. We were in Acts chapter 17, and we talked about where this entire study originated, which is Paul traveling through Thessalonica and then Berea and then into Athens, Greece, as he's waiting on his, his brothers to arrive. And he encounters all of this religiosity and a whole lot of idols at every corner. At every turn, we compared it to kind of present-day America. There is idolatry everywhere, and it is not just in the secular world, friend. I mean, these, he, as we talked about, Paul called these men very religious, and, as we drove home in part one, equally ignorant. You don't really even know who you're worshiping. The whole unknown God, I made the comparison of submission, of could it possibly be the same predicament the Christian church is in today where we, even the same verbiage, we are worshiping God. And I would say, do we know who we're worshiping? Does the Christian church know who she's praying to? who she is gathering and talking about, the name that they're saying. Do they know? I mean, I'm literally asking. I did not know. I didn't know. I just ascribed the name G-O-D. And I talked about, from my perspective, I believe it's very important for us to begin to understand as as the, the hordes of Christians that there are in this nation, it would be good for us to begin to identify who in the world we're worshiping with specificity. Yahweh, the Elohim of Elohims, I believe that matters. I think we talk about that enough. Now, I said, excuse me, at the end of part one, we were going to jump into Exodus chapter 32, and so we're going to do that right away, and I'm going to read just one through six. You likely know this account, of course, very well. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, isn't this, I don't know if this is exactly what they said, but if they did, this is quite comical. As for this Moses guy, (laughs) the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, oh oh yeah, Moses, as if they could talk about him in such a lighthearted manner. We don't know what's become of him. Where in the world is Moses? I don't know. He's probably never coming back. So in verse 2, Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. All the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, and he said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Adonai. Your version probably says, Lord. What? A feast to Adonai? I'm confused. That's the point of this whole series. Verse 6, So the next day they all got up early. They were excited. They had something to do. They didn't have to wait on Moses anymore. This is taking forever. 
And they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they even rose up to play. Had a little bit of yard darts there at the bottom of the mountain while Moses is up there face to face with Yahweh on their behalf. Ugh. Verse 7, Adonai spoke to Moses. You better go down at once, for your people who you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Okay, so again, I want you to take what we've talked about already from Acts chapter 17 and what Paul encountered when he saw the goings-on in Athens and set that right here and keep it parallel with what we're going to discuss here for, for quite a little while. And we'll jump back and forth connecting the two is my intent. I want to propose that the golden calf was clearly, in this text, if we really read it and understand what it's presenting, was clearly connected to Yahweh worship. Okay? Because we see, and there, it is just, to me, this is easily understandable, but nobody ever made this connection to me growing up. In my Christian walk for, again, so many years, nobody ever took time to make these connections clear. They were in sin. They made a golden calf. You're not supposed to. Bad, curses, judgment, death, the end. Don't build a golden calf. Uh, okay, why would I do that anyway? We missed the whole imagery and purpose of what it's even saying. And the intricacies that are within these few verses we just read, which we will talk about today. This, as I talked about at the end of part one, in my opinion, is equally idolatry. Ascribing worship to Yahweh errantly via any other means than other than to him directly as he prescribes. As we see here, the people needed something that they could see. Please pay attention to what we're going to talk about for a little while here. People needed something that they could see. As it continued in throughout time, all these circumstances, holy cow, would take the rest of all of our lives put together and we wouldn't even get to Acts chapter 17, What's going on in Acts chapter 17 that Paul encounters? Objects of worship at every turn. A religious people with plenty to see, plenty to gaze upon, plenty to bring an offering to this altar to unknown God. Plenty things. And y'all, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. They wanted something, the, the people of Israel, they wanted something they could look upon and attribute their worship to. Yahweh at the mountain was too much, too much to behold, too much to receive oracles from. Can't do it. This is beyond us. We've got to come up with our own idea. It's the man. This is the Bible pattern, the biblical pattern of humanity right here. It's everywhere. Man, by the works of their own hands, assembling something that they can see and touch and smell and taste and attributing it to Yahweh and it's idolatry, and he hates it. He hates it. We see that in the Word everywhere. They wanted something controllable, something they could grasp. In this case, the literal work of their own hands literally accomplished this as they took what adorned their natural man, earrings of gold, and made for themselves a graven image and then ascribed their deliverance to it. So do you understand what I'm presenting? They, they, they said that the gold, and even Aaron himself, said that the golden calf now represented their deliverer. Well, who delivered them? Yahweh. Who did they covenantally commit their lives to? 
All these things we will do. We join ourselves with you, Yahweh. We say yes to your covenantal commands and ways. Which is, man, we're going to get to that, of course. Many of you watching this program understand that more than me. I'm coming into a greater, much larger understanding of the wedding model imagery and the understanding of the covenantal betrothal, marriage, all those things. There's so many things we've just not been taught. But they had decided to make a graven image and then ascribe their deliverance to the image to be a representation of Yahweh, their deliverer. And man, all of a sudden, this dialogue between Yahweh and Moses comes to a halt, and he says, you know what? Get out of here and go down to the rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people that I delivered from the hand of the Egyptians. And he's smoking, he's smoking mad. Yahweh is. <laughs> I'm not even talking about Moses yet. <laughs> Now, I want you to please pay attention to this. Please be attentive to what I'm going to present for the next little bit. I don't know if I'll be able to deliver it in a way that I know my spirit is resonating with it. I pray the Father will help me. But as I was meditating on some of the specifics of what unfolded here with the golden calf in Exodus 32, I started asking questions like, why earrings? Why did Aaron instruct them to break them off? What? What? That's just how I work. I just stop, and I'm like, okay, I just literally sit right here. Why earrings, Father? Why would? What's the significance of the earring? Is it the gold? Is it where it was? Is it this or that? So I follow these trails in the scriptures and commentaries and prayer. And if we follow biblical hermeneutics, just basic principles of the law of first mention, we see earrings first show up when Rebekah was chosen to be Isaac's wife in Genesis chapter 24. Okay, simply put, earrings first appears in the written word of God in Genesis chapter 24 with Rebekah and her, her, her choosing by Yahweh Elohim, her markedness, her marked condition. The earring was given to her to signify that she had been chosen by Yah to become the wife of Isaac. Okay? Again, the very first time an earring appears that I know of, that I could find, is when the servant gives the earring to Rebecca to show she had been chosen to be the wife of Isaac. So if we follow this biblically, an earring signified an invitation into covenantal commitment. So, in Exodus 32, the surrendering of the golden earring removed from the ears of the ones who had heard Yah's ten words, his ten commandments, in Genesis chapter 20, this was an act that openly marked them as disobedient covenant breakers. So, friend, please listen to what I'm saying and at least ask the Word of God and ask, ask the Holy Spirit if this is true. Because I think this is humongous in the sense of giving us a snapshot of understanding of what we have all been guilty of doing. And maybe are guilty of doing right now, but we just don't know it yet. Because again, just like the people in Acts 17, you're religious and you're ignorant. That is our MO. That is the, the shirt we wear as Christians in America. Religious and ignorant. It is our identity that we have inherited from our fathers. It's just fact. 
So, again, I'm going to reiterate this because I think this is very weighty. The, the earring shows up for the first time, which is always a marked significance in, in, the, in Yah's word, okay? With Rebekah being chosen in Genesis 24 to be Isaac's wife. This is a covenantal representation that you have been chosen. You have been marked. You have been invited into covenantally joining yourself with the bridegroom. Okay? We're not even going to knock on that door. There's no time for all of that. So I believe when they took these rings out, when they took these earrings out and they burned them and melted them down, I believe they were equally saying, we are now covenant breakers. We are now saying when we lifted our hands and we responded to Yah's commands and ways and we said, yes, we will do all these things. <coughs> they said, you know what? We've changed our minds. And can we use a real strong word that I use a lot in just personal conversations? We're choosing to be whores now. We're choosing to be prostitutes. We're choosing to go our own way and to worship idols and tell Yahweh, you know what? No, thank you. And they became covenant breakers. As they surrendered their earrings in order to make for themselves an idol, a graven image, which they had been told clearly not to ever do, and then they did, they were openly defying Yah's law since they had already stated all these things we will do back in Exodus chapter 19. More on this in a minute. <laughs> okay, so now follow me with this. Earrings were parak. Parak. They were broken off into pieces. All this stuff matters now. Please listen to this. So were the tablets when Moses came down and heard the clamor of their idolatrous ways. Now, the Hebrew word is different, but the action to identify the two is the same. The earrings were broken off, and when Moses comes down and finds what's going on, which we'll get to in, in more detail, they too were broken down, broken into pieces. The earrings, upon being broken off, would be deemed incapable of being put back on from that point on. They couldn't be, because of the way they were removed, they weren't just, you know, gently taken out. They hurriedly got rid of them. And that's worth noting too, but I don't know if we have time for all of that. They hurried to remove them. They wasted no time. Some, some Jewish commentaries that you read on the, on the topic is very interesting about some things that, like they say, may have happened. Because if you look at the text and if you really examine it, Aaron told them to go get their, I think it's their sons and their, their wives and daughters, and get their earrings. But the account goes right into the next verse, and the people broke off their earrings. Now, we're not told specifically in, in the versions I found the men, but it was insinuated through Jewish tradition that the men were so hasty in wanting to, to do this, they just ripped them out of their own ears. Perhaps Aaron was hoping to buy some time. Go back to your tents, gather 
your earrings from your women and from your children, and that would probably take some time, and maybe Moses will be back down by then, and these people will stop this crazy, insatiable impatience. But instead, it's at least possible that upon hearing Aaron's suggestion, which which was a problem, of course, just tear them off. Here, take these. That's at least a possibility. Whatever the case, they could not be put back on because they were broken off. Also, it's worth noting that Aaron's instruction was to go get the earrings of the women and children, like we just said. Maybe trying to prolong their impatient rebellion and have Moses come and save the day. Yet we see in verse 32, uh, chapter 32, verse 3, they seemingly responded immediately. They couldn't wait to make themselves a god. They could not, literally now, they couldn't wait. So let's look back a little bit. Exodus chapter 24. This word, ozan, okay? Ozan, which is directly, directly related to hearing, okay? Please stay close, stay in. Stay locked in, please. Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it into the ears of the people. Ozan. They listened, okay? The people listened to the book of the covenant being read into their ears from Moses the prophet. And they said, Quote, as we've already touched on, but for the sake of where we are right now, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. Now let's make the connection to prove the point of what I'm trying to present as a possibility with the earrings, which is why we call this fashioning idols out of covenantal earrings. And again, keep Acts chapter 17 right here. Unknown God, religious, ignorant, needed something to see, something to touch. Okay. This Hebrew word, ozan, related to hearing. The people listened to what was being told to them by Moses about a covenantal joining with Yahweh. Yes, we choose to covenant out of our own mouths. All that you say, we will do. A covenant is established between two parties via ozan. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. What were they told? Have no other Elohim, no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol, graven image, and you shall not worship them. Why? Because I am a jealous Elohim. So Aaron was in direct disobedience. I mean, clear as a bell, no gray area. Direct disobedience as he in Exodus chapter 32 fashioned the golden calf with a graving tool. Okay? With a graving tool. So let's follow that for a minute. Well, let's let's jump back real quick to uh, Paul and Athens from Acts chapter 17 to continue this connection a little bit with Scripture. As we said in part one, and again, th- this is why the whole Word of God in its entirety is one long, fluid, life-giving source. It has no, it has no black and white. Nothing has changed. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Acts chapter 17, 29, as we said again in part 1, Paul, as he's walking around Athens, said, 
We are the offspring of God. We ought not to think that Yah is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's devices, fashioned by the skill or thoughts of man, as we talked about, the imaginations of men. You cannot come up with something in your own imagination, your own ability with a graven tool to fashion something for Yahweh Elohim. Why? Because you covenantally said you would never do that in Exodus chapter 24. In other words, stop trying to fashion the Elohim of Elohims according to your own abilities, resources, understanding, and imagination. Christian church, stop it. Stop it. Stop trying to come up with all these crazy, ridiculous, embarrassing ways to make God relevant to the world. <coughs> it's embarrassing. It looks nothing like Yahweh Elohim. It looks nothing like it, worshiping Him. As always, let's continue to make this personal. Let's not just get lost in the text, in the foolishness of Israel, in the foolishness of the people of Athens. See ourselves within this. By contrast, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 7, by the children of Israel's act of creating a new Elohim and ascribing it to the worship of Yahweh. Okay, they're, they're ascribing worship to this image, to this idol that, that Aaron fashioned with a graven tool. <laughs> the people corrupted themselves. So let's get let's kind of put that on the wall up here for a second. We're gonna we're gonna talk about corrupting ourselves. And why the golden calf anyway? This is intriguing, I think. The Egyptian god Apis, if you look up Apis, A-P-I-S, you'll see a whole bunch of stuff. Statues, carvings, golden idols, of course. Now, where do you think they got that idea? Do you think Aaron's just sitting there like, oh, man, come on, Moses, come on, man. Hurry up, the people are getting crazy. Where are you texting them? When are you coming down? Are you almost done talking to Yahweh face to face? They're getting nuts down here. Oh, I have an idea. I'm going to make a golden calf. No. All of the things that they experienced and all the mess and idolatry that they were delivered out of in Egypt. Like the god Apis. They had taken the foreign gods and incorporated it, incorporated it into the worship of Yahweh. He hates mixing, y'all. Oh my gosh. Can I just say something bluntly? I think Yahweh, I know from Scripture, I think I'm free to say this. Yahweh would rather you go out back and you, and you get some mud and some clay and some trees and you cut them up and you make a little shrine and, and then you take some, some feathers and some grass and a little bit of, I don't know, this would be ridiculous waste time, but you fashion your own little God and you call it whatever you want and he's your little God. Just him. And it's all about him. It's all about your little God. In your backyard now. Out of your own creativity. I believe that that infuriates Yahweh Elohim way less than you doing that and then worshiping him through it. Because we see a pattern in the Bible that's clear. I don't know much, but I know this for sure. Yahweh God hates mixing. He hates it. Why? He's a jealous God. In other words, look, man, don't be 
lining me up with the rest of all your little Elohims. <clears throat> Elohims. I am not the same. I am not the same, and don't ascribe to me worship and adoration by your own hands, your own imaginations, and your own stinking ideas. Yet mankind has done it again and again and again. I did it again. My own life was that. My own life was doing that. In Christianity, my whole life was doing that. I just didn't know why. Acts chapter 17. Religious and ignorant. Have I, have I driven that home yet? Let's continue following this stuff with the golden calf and earrings and all that. An interesting parallel to today now, because I studied some history about the goings-on of this time and, and just ancient deities, that sort of thing. I've done that off and on for years, but it's interesting now reading it through my present-day understanding. In my opinion, the people of Athens were open to many, God, many gods as the role of the gods was always to bring about favor and blessing. Just follow me with this thought, this question, for a little bit. The basis, the basis of their deities in, in Roman times, of all these plethora of gods that they had, was based upon the principle of exchange. Because you can look through ancient Near Eastern culture and you can see it, and you can look at it all the way through the scriptures and historical accounts, just normal history, and you look at and you study these gods, you study Dagon, you study fertility gods, you study gods that bring bountiful harvests. And what did they do? There was this exchange. We bring them this and they give us this. We bring them that and they give us that. And there's this, this back and forth synergy between Elohim's gods and men. We do this and they do this. In summary, the gods serve us. Really is the I think, the way it works. Because if it didn't work, if it didn't happen the way it was supposed to, the way it was prescribed, you'd get a new god. This god isn't doing it anymore. And in, in mythology, well, that goddess has an offspring, and then he does it. He brings bountiful crops. Without question, this has infiltrated the Christian church in, in, in immeasurable ways. This, I give, you give, Doctrine of, of it's, it's awful, <laughs> of yuckiness. Can I use a word that is maybe more applicable for children? It's infiltrated the Christian church about this. Now, it may not be stated as that, but there is this understanding of if you tithe your 10%, God will bless you. If you bless our ministry, he'll bless you. If you give to this program, I'll send you a book series, and God will we'll pray for you tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll pray for you, but only if you give. And there's this, this same corrupt exchange, I would say, that has infiltrated the Christian church as well, where God owes me something. If I give him something, he owes me. That's, that's ancient, ancient pagan idolatry, and I believe it, it grieves the Father. And it would be good for us to make sure that that's not in our life, I would say. The people of Athens had surely done the same as they welcomed the worship of a pantheon of gods, Zeus, Apollo, of course, Athena. You may worship Yahweh here, though, okay? So let's just stay here for a moment, and we'll wrap this uh, part up. Because as we saw with Paul in Acts, he goes to Athens, Greece, and what does he do? He goes to the synagogue. It wasn't outlawed. Synagogues weren't banned or underground or people living in caves and hiding because of 
the age? No. People were open and going to the synagogue. Why? It was tolerated. It was fine because you have a synagogue here and then you have a temple to Zeus here. Y'all mind your own business, pay your taxes, and don't ruffle up the natural kingdom functions of where we live. You know what? It doesn't matter. So Paul was there, of course, in a synagogue. So you can worship here, do what you want to do, as long as you don't disrupt the functions of the kingdom. This is why Paul preaching Yeshua Messiah as king mattered and flustered them so. Because he's using verbiage. This is the way I explained it to a friend the other day. He was using verbiage that was kingdom-oriented. Paul's coming in, he's talking about a Messiah who was the king and, and, and kingdom verbiage. His vernacular was, was talking about what sounded like natural kingdom business. And all of a sudden, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, are you talking about another king? Are you talking about someone that supersedes all that we do here in our governmental authority? Because if you're talking about that, we've got problems. That's my version. That's my take on it. They hated his kingdom language. It threatened their preferred way of life. They liked having the pantheon of gods. And don't even get me started on Trinitarian doctrine and how we have bought into that principle of a pantheon of gods, I would present this, and I'm not going to go there very long because this is kind of fresh in me and new. I was talking to my wife about this just this morning. Could it be that the heavy hand of Trinitarianism really found a satisfactory landing, pl landing place in the church because an echad, one true Yahweh Elohim of Elohims, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work in that culture. We need a pantheon of gods. We need gods. Okay, so just maybe now we can take this understanding and we can say, Father, Son, Spirit. We, you've even heard it yourself. They're three persons. Persons. Now, I, it's, this takes time to, to unravel and unpack, and I'm not smart enough to do it. I've never liked the persons presentation. But the, the, un, the ancient understanding was the Echad understanding was there was there was there is one Yahweh Elohim. One. <laughs> and I just wonder if it was made more palatable by a Trinitarian doctrine presentation to invite others in, you know, to be a, a relevant church. You want a whole bunch of gods? Let's take Yahweh Elohim, the Echad. Let's just make him a Trinitarian God. Can you do that? Oh, uh, yeah, I can do that. Okay. It's possible. I'm no Bible historian. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. So, to bring this to a close, the people, in their fashioning of the golden calf back in Exodus, of course, corrupted themselves. The Hebrew word for corrupted is shakath. Shakath. They had become spoiled, perverted, ruined, and destroyed. They had become corrupted, okay? We see that in the scripture that we already read. I don't know where it is. I'm really kind of haphazard all over the place today. They had corrupted themselves in Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. They had corrupted themselves with the golden calf. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, let me tell you. Shakath. Where do we first see this word corrupted? Genesis, of course. We did this in the recent series that I talked about. I kept, oh, Genesis, Garden of Eden, flood. 
Well, here we are again. Genesis chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, judgment comes about during Noah's day. Quote, Then Yahweh said, My spirit will not remain with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. He was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And it continues on in uh, 11 and 12. The earth was corrupt. It was corrupted. The, the people were corrupted in the sight of Yahweh, and the earth was filled with violence. And he looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. It's repeated. For humanity had corrupted its way upon the earth. Again, again. <laughs> Corrupt in the sight of Yahweh. He looked and it was corrupt. Humanity had corrupted his way. Okay? That's where this first appears. Okay? This shakath. And again, we just read these people, when they broke the covenantal earrings out of their ears and made a golden calf and hoard themselves before Yahweh Elohim, they had corrupted themselves, which points us back to Genesis and the point of the flood. And just as in the days of Noah, mankind had again corrupted himself. In our main text from Exodus, when they fashioned the graven image, I would add that Yahweh limiting man's years to 120 years was actually a blessing and not a curse. A little side note off of that. I felt like that was something that I asked the Father while I was studying this. I'm like, maybe this was a blessing. Well, how could that be a blessing? I would submit that in light of, of what we're talking about in this, in this series, man's inability to wait and live according to Yah's commands, in light of that, Yahweh was actually helping all of us to have a shorter lifespan, literally enabling us to possibly remember His covenant. It's just a thought. You understand what I'm saying? When He limited man's years to 120 Maybe it was for our good because we wouldn't become so stinking forgetfulness like all those who preceded us and forget his ways and forget his ways. So maybe by shortening our lives to 120 years minus, there's hope for us to what? To remember our covenant with the Father. It's just a thought. Likewise, in Acts chapter 17, we're going to bring this one to a close, Athens. In Athens, mankind had corrupted themselves again. Again, we're running these parallel. Acts 17, Exodus 32. They had, been they had become corrupted by pulling the earrings out, breaking them off, melting them down. Aaron made the image, and they worshipped it, worshipped it, corrupted. Acts 17, corrupted themselves yet again. How? Why? Today, same reason, same problem. We have become corrupt by organizing our own ways to approach Yahweh. Idolatry. We are a forgetful people. I'm going to read this and then we're going to be done for this one. We're going to go all the way to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. In the last days, verse 3 first, 3-3. Three, three. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying... Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Where in the world is the promise of his coming? 
That's why I talked about that, if I can find my notes at the very beginning. What I want to drive home in this is we talk about fashioning idols out of covenantal earrings is as we look at Exodus 32 and as we look at Acts chapter 17, and we could do this with many other texts, we've grown tired of waiting. We, we are the people at the base of the mountain grumbling and complaining, saying, Moses, this man Moses who led us out. Who knows what's happened to him? We have to do something. We've got to fashion something. We've got to break our covenantal commitment and come up with something with our own hands. And that's what Paul found in Acts chapter 17 was kind of the fruit of that issue, I would say. A whole entire city overflowing with graven images and idolatry. Why? To an unknown God. Mankind so divorced and disconnected to their covenantal commitment with, commitment with Yahweh Elohim, they have no idea what they're doing. We have had no idea what we're doing, yet we're people full of idolatry because we're very religious like the people of Athens. Very religious and we're very ignorant. We are very ignorant. <clears throat> and I believe Yahweh, who is a jealous God, is bringing judgment to his house. He has to. He has to. Why? For there to be any chance for a bride made ready. If there's any chance for a bride made ready, he has got to bring correction to his people to say, you are out whoring. You've broken my covenant. And the bridegroom's coming and you're not ready. It's our reality. It's the condition of the Christian church. But there's time for us. <laughs> there's time for us while we're still here watching this, saying these things, listening with our ears. What are we doing? What was that word that we already talked about? The Hebrew understanding. Ozan. Moses read the book of the law, and to the ears of the people, they listened. Friends, we don't have to break it off, throw it down, and fashion something with our own hands because we need to touch something. Because Yahweh's too much, and the mediator's never coming back. And just like the warning in 2 Peter, they're going to say in the last days, where in the world is the promise of His coming? Everybody's fallen asleep. We're tired of waiting. Friends, don't fashion an idol out of covenantal earrings. Yahweh is sending His Son, the Bridegroom, to return to gather a bride who has made herself ready and has kept herself pure and is wearing the mark <coughs> of hearing Yah's commands and laws and ways and to the best of her ability she's keeping herself chaste and clean and ready because the bridegroom's coming the bridegroom's coming the shofar is about to sound and he's coming back and i'm going to be made ready friend is that you i pray that it is that's the whole point of this the whole point of this is to make us a bride made ready Thank you for watching. We'll come back with part three. Oh, man, I don't even know how much I'll cover in this. There's plenty more to come. You've been watching the Path Design podcast. 
we are rediscovering the ancient way. It's a way we've not known. It's a way that's been kept in the dark for me my whole life. But praise the Father. He's taken off my blinders. He's shown me that His Word is a light. And I'm thankful for that. And I hope you know that, friend. Reach out to us if you have questions, challenges, things you understand better than me, things you don't understand at all that you'd like more information towards. This stuff's all printed out as well. I, I, I email it to anyone who asks. I'll even mail it in an envelope in a mailbox if you would prefer. But you can reach out to us here, anywhere online, all over the place, and at pathdesignpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for watching. Amen.